Hey everyone, I have a podcast to tell you about and it's one I'm featured on, Booze and Broadway. My best friend Nathan Brown hosts this wildly funny show with incredible guests every Friday that does a deep dive into the creation, notable cast members, and plot of some of the most popular Broadway shows. He's done episodes on Hamilton, Wicked, Into the Woods, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and over 50 other shows, all with a drink in hand. Trust me, if you like drunk history, you are going to love Booze and Broadway. I sat down with Booze and Broadway, and we covered the Lizzie Borden musical. Yes, there's a Lizzie Borden musical, and it's so good. That episode is out today, October 29th, and I would love if you went over to Booze and Broadway and gave the show a listen wherever you are listening to podcasts. There's also a link in the description of this episode. Enjoy. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... There was once a time where children were allowed to walk their community and feel safe doing so. But stories like today's are the reason you see helicopter parenting. On October 29th, 1981, a young girl was snatched off the streets and into a mystery that took almost 30 years to solve. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In 1981, Tina Marie Harmon, born June 9, 1969, was a sixth grader at the Sterling Elementary School in Creston, Ohio, with big dreams of becoming a famous singer when she grew up. She was a tough girl, never backing down from a fight with her brothers, was extremely social, had some rebellious streaks, and was just starting to show interest in boys and becoming a little bit more independent. Meeting up with friends at the Union 76 truck stop, where she would smoke some cigarettes and play some arcade games. On October 29th, 1981, Tina got a ride into town with her father's girlfriend, who dropped her off at a convenience store in Creston, where she met up with three of her other friends from school. In a time where kids wandered around the town aimlessly as a form of entertainment, their little rendezvous was a completely normal Thursday afternoon. That was until around 6.30 p.m. when the other friends decided to go to a house of a nearby friend with big plans to sleep over and spend the evening playing games. Tina was excited for the new plan, but wanted to stop at a nearby store to grab some ice cream first. She told her friends to go off without her and that she would catch up once she purchased her fudgesicle. But as the girls waited, Tina never showed up to their sleepover. As word started to spread about the 12-year-old's disappearance, the owner of the store where she got her ice cream recalled seeing Tina leave the store followed by a white, unshaven male in his 20s to 30s wearing a jean jacket. The following day, as kids were supposed to be putting the finishing touches on their Halloween costumes, everyone in Creston came out looking for any signs of the missing girl. A local TV station lent their helicopter, police sectioned off search areas, volunteers combed every surface in the town, yet no one seemed to find a single trace of Tina Harmon. And with the exception of the report given by the store owner, no one had any information about the girl either. Even her parents, who described their daughter's small rebellions, said she was smart enough to know her limits. Then, on November 3rd, 1981, about 40 miles away from Creston, a young hunter tracking deers in Navarre, Ohio, spotted something strange lying on the ground. It was the fully clothed body of a young girl, 
Tina Harmon, who had nothing on her person but $3.25 in cash and a matchbook from the Union 75 truck stop. The body was brought to the hospital where police confirmed her identity. When informed that not only was their daughter dead, but that police believed she had been murdered, Tina's mother fainted. According to the coroner, Tina had suffered from a violent last few moments on earth. She was raped, sexually assaulted, bound, and beaten, her body showing signs that she put up a hell of a fight before being overpowered. Her cause of death was determined to be strangulation, with rope burns found on her neck that indicated it was the first attempt before the unknown killer switched to his own bare hands. She had been in the field for less than 24 hours. In addition to the detail of her death, Tina's body offered an important piece of evidence that would later become the crux of her whole case. Dog hairs and tiny orange fibers, which covered every single piece of Tina's clothing, with the exception of her underwear. Fibers that examiners later determined came from a polyester carpet that must have been in either the murderer's car or in his home. But with nothing to compare it to, police soon hit a dead end. What they didn't know at the time was that Tina would be the first in what would become four murdered girls found in the area. In July of 1982, the body of Krista Harrison, who was abducted from a baseball field, was found dead six days later by turtle trappers. On her body, which had been raped and strangled to death, were those telltale orange fibers. Then that September saw the disappearance of seven-year-old Dawn Marie Hendershot, who was abducted on her way home from Goral Elementary. A year later, it was 10-year-old Deborah K. Smith, who vanished from the streets only to be found a month later on the banks of the Tuscawaras River. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that a vicious serial killer was stalking the rural community of Wayne County, Ohio, and parents of young girls kept an extra firm grip as fear spread throughout their tight-knit community, a community that rarely saw any crime, let alone the brutal murder of young girls. With only the carpet fibers to work with, police began taking samples from the home and the car of every single person of interest in any of the four cases, scoured motel rooms and truck stops, and began hunting down every single convicted sex offender on their list to get samples from their vehicles. Nothing. But then on November 17, 1981, just three weeks after Tina's murder and just before Krista's, a break in the case came to police in the form of an unlikely but crucial source. According to a local woman named Mary Bowman and her teenage daughter Lois, they had been driving on Route 539 when they saw a beat-up-looking car bobbing and weaving through traffic. Inside were two scruffy-looking men and a young girl who appeared to be struggling inside. Mary, realizing something was amiss, started honking her horn to draw attention to the situation. When she did, the girls somehow managed to escape. They then saw the car do a U-turn to chase after their captive and sped off. The women, terrified, did not stick around to see what happened next. According to their description, the mother and daughter swore to police that the girl they saw was, without a doubt, Tina Marie Harmon something they didn't realize until they saw the news report about her body being discovered a few days later. Unfortunately, Mary Bowman could recall very little about the car in question, but after being hypnotized, claimed it was a bluish-green Pontiac or Plymouth with no rear bumper and a dark red stripe on the side of the car. She claimed it had blue fur carpet in the back window and was outfitted with a temporary license plate. 
Using her description, police located a 26-year-old named Herman Ray Brucker. Herman, a local in Wayne County who had a criminal record with several misdemeanor offenses, had recently been convicted of driving under the influence and, like Tina, frequented truck stops and hung out with 19-year-old Ernest Holbrook Jr., a married man who was expecting a child. However, Herman's car did not match Mary Bowman's description, but with very little else to go on, police decided to interview both men on November 24, 1981. Both, of course, denied any involvement in Tina's murder and provided alibis for the day of her disappearance. But desperate for a suspect and with both men fitting their profile, police named them as prime suspects and began working the case as such. Then on December 3rd, 1981, police interviewed a woman named Susan Sigler. Sigler, whose name had been given by an anonymous source claiming to know information about Tina's murder. Susan, who knew both Herman and Ernest casually, claimed that she had some incriminating information on the men and proceeded to spin the following story for police. Susan claimed that she and the men were out drinking one night when Herman confided in her that he and his buddy, along with a third man named Earl Conaway, had kidnapped, raped, and murdered Tina Harmon. He claimed that when Earl made sexual advances on the girl, she resisted. So they ripped off her clothing, raped her, and then, in his own words, beat the shit out of her, slamming her head against the car and leaving her to die on the side of the road. While this seemed like the final nail in the men's coffin, Susan's story didn't necessarily line up with what police knew about the case. According to Tina's autopsy, she showed no signs of head trauma, and Herman's employer offered a pretty solid alibi for the night of the abduction that would have made it impossible for him to be present when the murder took place. In response to their trepidation, Susan doubled down and claimed that Ernest's cousin, Curtis Maynard, had been there when the confession was made and would back up all of her testimony. So they brought in Curtis on December 10th and pretty quickly realized that there was going to be some issues with his credibility. In addition to having an IQ of only 71, 24-year-old Curtis Maynard had a pretty hefty criminal record and had just recently been paroled on an aggravated assault and grand theft auto charge. While there, he was warned that another offense could send him back to prison for up to 20 years and was advised that it would be in his best interest if he cooperated with police. Terrified to be sent back to prison, Curtis agreed to assist in the investigation. From an outside source with a lot of hindsight, it's clear that there were a number of unsettling holes in this investigation. But blinded by desperation, police continued down their path. Based solely on the testimonies of Susan Sigler and Curtis Maynard, Ernest Holbrook and Herman Ray Rucker were charged with the murder of Tina Harmon. They were indicted on February 9th, 1982, just five months before the murder of Krista Harrison. Despite the fact that Curtis's story changed constantly and that none of the evidence lined up, both men were convicted of the rape and murder and sent to prison. Not long after, Curtis officially recanted his testimony. Susan was found to be a poor witness. Herman Ray Rucker was given a new trial and acquitted in 1983, while new evidence surfaced that caused the prosecution to drop their charges against Ernest Holbrook. 
The whole state went into a panic because not only had their pressure placed innocent men behind bars, but the sloppy investigation and rushed imprisonment gave the family and the community a false hope that was then cruelly torn away from them when the error was revealed. While the public reeled and reputations were destroyed, a new man made his way into the investigation that would finally provide some answers to the community burning with questions. On October 16, 1983, in a nearby town called Damascus, a 28-year-old gas station manager known only as Debbie was closing up for the night when a man grabbed her from behind. He commanded her to stay still, clapped his hand over her mouth, threatened to shoot her if she didn't come with him, and forced her into his car. The assailant then drove Debbie to a suburban home in Clinton, Ohio, where he led her to the garage and forced her to take off all of her clothes. Terrified, she did exactly as he said and was chained to a weight bench where, after shaving her head with a safety razor, the man spent the next 10 hours brutally raping, beating, and torturing her. He shocked her with the exposed wires from a severed lamp cord, hit her in the head and stomach, forced her to drink his urine and semen, suffocated her with plastic bags to the point of loss of consciousness, revived her, and then started all over. She was whipped until she bled and raped more times than she could even count. After eight hours of torture in the garage, she was moved to the man's bed where he handcuffed her to the bedpost and began dressing in a suit for work. He told her he would be back in three hours and left the house. Seizing the opportunity, Debbie spent the next two hours trying to free herself, all the while hearing his threatening voice saying, if you try to escape, I'll find you and kill you in the back of her head. When she finally felt the restraints loosen, she snatched his nearby bathrobe and ran out of the house, barefoot and into a neighborhood that she did not recognize. With nowhere to go, she collapsed to the ground and started pleading for help. That's when she heard a dog barking nearby and, hoping its owner was still home, she ran to the house, pounded on the door, and was greeted by an elderly woman who brought her inside and bolted the door behind her calling the police as soon as she gave Debbie some food to calm her nerves. Within minutes, the police were there and, in a report that was filed, one of the officers claimed she was so badly beaten and bruised that he thought she was wearing deep purple underwear. Between hysterical sobs, Debbie relayed her horrific story and pointed straight to the house where she had endured her torture. Police took up position and at 11 a.m., exactly three hours like he had said, police arrested Robert Anthony Buell, a highly respected member of the Clinton community, and charged him with the crimes against Debbie. Robert, they soon learned, had been living a double life and, from what they could figure, Debbie was not the first woman to suffer from his sexual sadism. Arrested for the first time in 1978 for public indecency, Robert had been arrested shortly after for abducting a 29-year-old woman who was visiting Ohio from West Virginia. Like Debbie, she was raped and tortured for four days before being released by her captor. And after his face ended up on the front page of the local press, a number of other women came forward with very similar stories to tell. But they weren't all women in their 20s. No, a few girls came forward saying that a man, Robert, had approached them, with one, a 13-year-old girl, saying he was the previously unknown man who had sexually assaulted her in the basement of his home in August of 1981. A girl that not only identified Robert as her attacker, 
But on March 8, 1983, had the anonymous calls that came to her house traced back to Robert Buell. These incidents, amongst others, were enough to spark the officers' memories of the unsolved case of Tina Harmon and Krista Harrison, girls who seemed to fit Robert's M.O. On October 20th, 1983, while still being looked into for the unsolved murders of the young girls, Robert Buell was charged with the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Debbie and the woman from West Virginia. He pleaded no contest and confessed to the crimes he was charged with. But when accused of the murder of Krista Harrison, Robert denied any involvement and insisted he was innocent. While sitting in prison awaiting his sentencing, investigators worked to build up a case against Robert Buell. Working with that evidence that they collected back in 1981, police wanted to see if Robert had ever owned a dog that matched the hairs found on the girl's body. He did, and not only had the dog died recently, but he was buried in Robert's yard, meaning the body was able to be exhumed and samples were taken for comparison. While they waited for the results, a number of things around Robert's home matched bits and pieces of Krista's crime scene. But probably the most damning piece of evidence came when police looked into his vehicle records and found that he once owned a late model maroon Dodge van, one that matched the witness statements taken after Krista's kidnapping, and inside was an orange polyester carpet, a perfect match to the fibers found on both Krista and Tina's bodies. The next day, the FBI determined that the dog hairs were a match and Robert Buell was officially named the killer. On November 15, 1983, Robert was charged with the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Krista Harrison. He pleaded not guilty, and on January 31, 1984, he was sentenced to 320 years for the rape and kidnapping of Debbie and the West Virginia woman. His trial for Krista's murder came in March of 1984, and based on the irrefutable evidence, quite the opposite from Ernest and Herman's case, after three days of deliberation, he was found guilty and sentenced to death on April 11, 1984, in addition to another life sentence for the rape charge and 25 more years for the kidnapping. Throughout his time on death row, Robert Anthony Buell maintained his innocence when it came to Krista and Tina's murder. After 18 years behind bars in 2002, Robert was taken to the execution chamber where his last words were to the Harrison family. Jerry and Shirley, I didn't kill your daughter. The prosecution knows that and they left the real killer on the streets to kill again and again and again. He then continued, I ask that you continue to pursue this to the end. Do not let the prosecution continue to spin this out of focus and force them to find out who really killed your daughter. That's all I have to say. He took his last breath, having never been charged with Tina Harmon's murder, nor the murders of Deborah K. Smith and Dawn Marie Hendershot, of which many are certain he is guilty of perpetrating. After 30 years of being officially an unsolved case, the semen found on Tina's dress was tested and compared to Robert Buell's DNA. It was a match. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 30th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>